This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. Hi, Ben Hebert. Hey. Hey. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Chris. What the hell is up, guys? It's a Sunday. When this goes live, yeah, yeah, when it when this goes live, it's going to be a Wednesday, but it's going to be crazy back to school time for both you and me, and we will be trying not to die. Um, so to all of you people out there who are doing the same thing, Good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> don't don't get in a car and drive away. It's all gonna be okay. <laughs> we were we were talking about that, Rosie, how I, I belong to like an email list that sends me cheap flights all the way around the world and uh-huh. uh, I love my job and I love my family, but those emails come in this time of year and I'm like, uh, I could just live in Haiti. I immediately subscribed to that. It's um everyone out there. It's Scott's cheap flights. Yeah. You can just get that email and have that little fantasy of going, you know, to England to go visit Ben mm-hmm. yeah. and breaking your family's heart. <laughs> it's it's all gonna be fine. We're gonna make it through. Uh, <laughs> I I wanted to welcome Ben Heb- Hebert this morning. Ben. Hello. 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 We are talking in a little bit to the Moore family and uh, their uh, first and second generation bow makers in the United States. They um, are trying to teach the next generation of luthiers and makers. I just wondered if you had anything you could share with us about about this whole scene. (laughs) Oh, well, it's really exciting because, you know, a few years ago, it was just you went to college and then you kind of figured out you either got a job where people told you what to do or you didn't get a job and people told you what you're doing wrong. And it's just really fantastic to see what's going on. I mean, Oberlin, then Trade Secrets, and over in England, we've had Westine for a while, and now we're doing things which are not quite copying what the VSA and the Americans are doing, but you know, more sort of bow courses and stuff like that. And it's really a new kind of world, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. more opportunities for you to not get things wrong. Oh, yeah. Are you allowed to talk about uh, where you are this week? I am at the Cambridge Violin Making Classes, which is a little thing that happens in England. It's actually fairly unique and pretty wonderful because it's a lot of amateur people, mostly. So lots of retired people and some people who, before they're going to violin making school and just basically everyone. And they're they're either there sort of doing evening classes or coming on on the weekends or they're doing one or two weeks during the summer. And in England, I don't think we've got anything quite like it in America because it's it's all about just, you know, people who've played the violin all their life and want to make one. And it's it's actually just so much fun and so, you know, so refreshing because of everybody who's, who's there for reasons which are completely different from the day-to-day of buying and selling. And I'm there today because a few of us have broken in and we're doing a bow course uh, and trying to be professional about it. <laughs> you are making a bow right now. You are making a pacat. 
copying one badly. What stage are you in? I'm nearly finished. You're, n- you're nearly finished? I'm nearly finished. Burnishing the stick, making it shine. Mm. Yeah, this it's uh, 120 people come through this school every year. That sounds so much. It sounds very relaxed. So it sounds great. So if you've got any of those sort of annoying people who are a little bit too interested in, in instruments who come to your shop. No. Just tell them to go to Cambridge. You know, you know the sort, you know. Yeah. Okay. Tell them to take a holiday to Cambridge and, you know, it might sort them out. And they only have to go there a few weeks, right? It's not like a three-year thing. A few weeks again and again over years. Oh, I see. Yeah. I'm going to tell my favorite one of those clients that uh, they can stay at your place, Ben. Oh, yeah. That would yeah. be, that'll be great. <laughs> he likes to, to come by and go, so how do you manage to make a good violin since we haven't had an ice age in a while? Good point. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it takes. Mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got a basement <laughs> with a very large lock. ah there's a great murder trial which i was looking at not very long ago from james brown the violin maker and uh what time period was he he's about 1810 or so and he had a very frustrating servant and he uh so one day he gets utterly utterly annoyed with the servant and basically tells her to go to go to hell and die and within three days, she's found Stone Cold dead. <gasps> and okay. there's another violin maker who fancied the servant, who t- who takes him to court because he's certain that he put a spell on her, and that's why she died. Yeah. Okay, I'm here for it. Yeah, witchcraft and violin making, and uh, yes, and clearly this other person had an unprofessional relationship with the servant, and that might have been part of the reason why Brown was frustrated with him. So yeah, it doesn't get so an another kind of spell. I see. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I uh, uh traditionally. If you wanted to head, take over a shop, you had to marry your one of your master's daughters. Is that a is that still something you recommend to young luthiers today, Ben? It depends on what your master's daughter's like. <laughs> what you've got to understand is that often people were put into an apprenticeship with someone who was a family friend, uh-huh. and they'd be put in a, into an apprenticeship when they're eight or nine years old. So if there's an eight or nine year old girl who's the daughter of a family friend and all of that kind of stuff, it's a, it's not as weird as it all looks. Uh, it's <laughs> when I'm being flipping about it, yeah, yeah, and and it's not, you know, there's an there's an awful lot of thought that because the woman, you know, be, because the woman can't take on a business, she need she needs somebody to to do it. So you can look at it that way, which isn't terribly no. helpful. Or actually, that maybe there was romance and love and stuff. Well, you know, we put so much weight on all of that, you know, and modernize. Yeah, we are in the most romantic business in the world. Yeah, I agree. Yay! Hooray. Romantically nerdy. I think people that make spandex panties might disagree with you. And the BBMA is is making a wonderful push to to foster those things and hold up when you say bvma that stands for the 
Villain Mastery Association. That's what I thought. With Ben is the chairman. No, sorry. Okay. That's it. I've been trying to figure out what it means for about three years, actually. <laughs> it's the British Violin Making Violin Makers Association, right? Or is it making? Forgive me. Uh, God, it's making. <laughs> it's one of them. We think. <laughs> it's making. And when it was first started, there was a huge rumpus about whether it should be the Makers Association or a Making Association. There was shouting over tea. There was probably some tea was spilled, yes. <laughs> Rosie, are you a member yet? I became a member, and uh, man, the the booklet, the the publication that Ben's been putting together is the nicest thing. Wait, wait, wait. So I can become a member even though I'm not British? You can become a member even though you're not British. Okay. Just like I can be a member of the VSA, you can be a member of the BVMA. Okay, okay. And you can come and do all sorts of really interesting things over here and read our newsletter thingy. And you've got a thing coming up in September. Yeah, so uh, what we do is a sort of big weekend every two years uh, where we find a subject that we want to talk about. So the first time we did this, it was The Messiah. Two whole days about talking about one violin and trying to figure out whether it was genuine or not. And this time we, we're just looking at all those great, northern european makers in the 17th century that had nothing to do with italy and sort of just celebrating them really that's great that sounds like my kind of nerdiness i really like that when the messiah comes up on facebook or cross myself maestronet now we can just <laughs> link to that symposium you had instead of you know telling calling people names yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it was a cool one because we had, you know, three different kinds of forensic science, which all came together. And you can, you can argue until you're blue in the face whether dendrochronology means this or that, when the varnish means this or that. But we took, you know, everything and put it together and we found a compelling scientific case which supports it being genuine. And that's not what really happened before. It was, you know, experts with a lot of, with a lot of financial interest saying it was genuine. Yeah. We've never seen a Strad before, but decided to write books about it saying that yeah. it was fake. And it got a bit like conspiracy theory. It probably still. <gasps> Rosie loved that. That, that sounds, yeah. that sounds really fun. <laughs> but for those of you listening that aren't familiar, the, the Messi, the Messiah is the most pristine instrument attributed to Antonio Stradivari. It was bought uh, by uh, Viome in, uh, and he had it from a, a collection. And mm -hmm. there has been noise for hundreds of years now that it wasn't actually a Strad, that it was built by Viome, and that uh, the small quirky things that stick out to certain people as not being typical of Strad means that it must have been the greatest fake ever pulled off. And, uh, Ben did his part to shut those stinkers up. Yeah. Stinkers. Now, Ben, am I remembering correctly, is that the violin that is at the Ashmolean Museum over in the Oxford? Big red lollipop, yeah. Yes, okay, okay, just making sure. Yeah. Lovely. But we've got another conference coming up, the 14th to 15th of September, early Northern European makers. So all those weird old in instruments that don't seem to be Italian, but look really good. That's where we're going to be talking about them. 
And we've got an amazing lineup of brilliant speakers. And I'm speaking to you. Of course. <laughs> and and where specifically is that going to be at? That's in Oxford. Um, Lovely. Yeah, it's £120 to come along there. And uh, accommodation's cheap. And there's going to be lots of beer. Beer is, a, beer is good. Beer is very good. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Warm beer. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome back to Omo. Welcome back. Hi Rosie, how you doing? I'm great. Hi Chris. Tell me how things are in Tacoma Park. Oh man, it's it's 100 degrees in the shade here and uh, you can't see out the windows and buildings because the condensation is amazing. So it is Swamplandia and it's, it's still beautiful. Uh, apparently this great. is a good time for people to cut down enormous trees where I'm recording. So if you guys, yes, you've got some friends across the street or next door. Oh, they're yeah. Now they're my friends. I want them to find me willow trees. So I talked to them and they they looked at me like I was crazy because willows are junk trees. But uh, uh, there's going to be some dino noises, a little bit of uh, uh, while we're doing this. Okay. I think it sounds like a robot attacking. So um, if you guys hear that, that's what's going on. It's Skynet. <laughs> well, guys. Our episode we had a couple weeks ago, we had uh, Sofia Vittore, who was a third generation maker out of Florence. And, uh, you know, that's the historical way of doing it, passing down information from, uh, from parent to child. And we thought there's no better time to introduce um, some people here in the States that are doing that, but also uh, are following a more modern model of teaching. Uh, you know, we've got uh, traditionally the the family way of of passing on, but then we had schools come along, and now we've got uh, workshops for continuing education. Uh, so I wanted to introduce Rodney Moore and his daughter Kate. Hi, Rodney and Kate. Hi, how are we doing? Hey, hi guys. <laughs> Welcome to the show. You guys are co-owners of a uh, bow making shop more and more in Ashland, Ohio with, uh, with Ann, or is Kate cut out of that? Kate, are you a co-owner yet? I am not a co-owner of more and more. I have my own business called, uh, Fia de more, which is daughter of. Nice. Yeah. More and more and more just sounds a little <laughs> you know, redundant maybe, or we thought about it could be, you know, more and more. What more do you need? <laughs> you, and the answer is Kate. Yeah. So there you go. I really like that you guys have some tools and you call them more better tools. Yes. And I wish that got used all the time. It makes me so happy. It's It was fun putting that, that name together. Yes. <laughs> Lots of giggling. <laughs> Nobody's going to forget it. Well, I wanted to introduce you guys. You are my our first bow makers on the show. Or what is the fancy word? Archier. Archier. Okay. Or something like that. Yeah. Archetier. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience being bow makers, guys. Well, I started making bows actually before I graduated from the Chicago School of Violin Making. Then it was called the Kenneth Warren School. And um, I've been making for over 35 years. And uh, last November, I made my 1,000th bow. My goodness. Oh, so it's been, it's been fun. I, I, I tell people uh, 
in a whisper, I said, I can't believe I get to get up every day and go out to my shop and make bows and people pay me to do it. It's great. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> now you've made a thousand bows. Um, I know that my first violin took me 600 something hours and a violin now takes around 140, 160 how many hours do you think with all of the experience in your hand and, and hands, <laughs> you've got more than one hand, uh, does it take you to make a bow now? Uh, probably takes me somewhere around 40 hours. It's, it's kind of funny because um, early on in my career, in my career, I could have made a bow much, much faster than I do now, but I wasn't... Um, I wasn't aware, let's put it that way, of all of the nuances that I'm putting into a bow. So it, there's just more to think about, and uh, it takes me a little bit longer. And, of course, the phone rings, and UPS man shows up, and there's a rehair, and so there's always something getting in the way of getting it done. Well, guys, tell me, how much Pernambuco stain is on your hands right now? <laughs> um. Enough that I would be embarrassed to go to the grocery store and, you know, hand my card or some money. Um, I'm I'm pretty purple most of the time. Yeah, we've talked about that. It's always like when you reach for something in public and somebody looks down and, and thinks you're just a filthy human when they see their, your hands, you know. Well, the funny part is um, uh, if I lift my hands up over my head, you'll see my purple armpits and my shirts too. <laughs> what? Oh, because you put the bow under your arm. Yeah, because the oh. dust, you know, the dust <laughs> sticks to anything that's moist, and and uh, yes, yeah, so a, a lot of my shirts have purple armpits. So I remember when we were little in the house that we were in before Dad's workshop was down in the basement, and so was the laundry room. And anytime mom would do the white laundry, we'd all end up with little pink spots <laughs> on our clothes from because one tiny little piece wow. of Pernambuco shaving got into the wash. And the color will come out in almost any volatile. Um, I was taught that you use lemon to get it off, that something really, really acidic is the only way. Do you guys smell like lemon a lot? <laughs> so if you wash your hands with lemon juice, um, basically what it does is it turns the color yellow, which is obviously less noticeable than purple or. Oh, it just changes the pH. It doesn't strip it. Just, yeah. Uh -huh. right. okay. okay. So, uh, purple t-shirts for Rodney every Christmas, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we thought about, you know, maybe for a VSA auction to have like, um, pre-stained bowmakers t-shirts <laughs> so people could be, you know. Who's the real bow maker out there? You could be the, the faux bow maker with the purple armpits. <laughs> cool. <laughs> or you could do, you know, like the t-shirts that have all the coffee stains on it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do the Pernambuco stains. <laughs> um, so, Rodney, you shared with us earlier a story of the first bow rehair that you ever did, and I would love to hear it again. So, when I was probably about 16 years old, um, my parents worked at a YMCA camp in Michigan called uh, Store Camps. And we had about 150 horses. So um, I decided to go out and find a, a hair donor 
and there was this uh, little pony with this beautiful white tail, and I decided that that, that would be the perfect hair. And so um, the only problem was that they weren't going to have to be plucked out to be long enough. So <laughs> by the time I got enough hair to do the rehair, this pony was really not uh, happy with me. <laughs> Do you have like a horseshoe shaped scar to go with this story? Uh, no, I don't. But, um, you know, I kind of knew where to stand and to keep from getting kicked. <laughs> don't stand right behind them. Yes. When you're pulling the hair out of their tail. Oh, and Kate, that reminds me, you, you've got a lovely tattoo that explains your place in the bow making world. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I've got a tattoo on my right forearm. That is, um, it's a cello bow with broken hair and the broken hair spells out my business name. And I was actually, that's my, uh, business logo. And I was able to write it off on my taxes <laughs> as advertising. Nice. So every time I, I reach out to shake somebody's hand, they're seeing my business logo. Kind of sticks in people's mind that way. That's great. And what does it say? It says Fia de More. And tell us what that means. Daughter of More. Great. So I am the first second generation female bow maker in the United States. That's awesome. Well, Kate, I hung out with you guys a couple months ago and met your dad and he seems really lovely. Um, but you guys, you have a daughter-father dynamic where you guys are both making. Are there times where you guys butt heads philosophically on your different styles? I don't think we butt heads at all. I mean, I'm I'm learning from my dad. So, you know, his philosophies are my philosophies. Um, but my style itself is very different from my dad's. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not that different, but... Um, it is different from my dad. How you like? What was that, Chris? The style is how you finish things aesthetically. The materials you choose, or what do you think? well, I would say it's it's more the the, the shape of her head is different than mine. Mm -hmm. The treatment of uh, you know when you when the chamfers come off of the back of the head and blend their way into the stick, she has a very different way of doing that than I do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very much a traditionalist. Um, in that way, and Kate is not. So, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely going to be difference. If you, a hundred years from now, you look at our two bows, you will see that there is a difference between them mm -hmm. for sure. But you'll also see that there's a lot of similarities too. Kate, are you going to remove your tattoo and mount it so that when Wesley, your son, decides to become a bow maker, he can point at it at the wall when he has students <laughs> in fifty oh, years? So when I'm dead, there's actually, I, I've kind of looked it up online and maybe it's a little morbid, but there are kits that you can buy. Oh my God. That, yes. So when somebody passes away, you can have the uh, mortician remove the skin that the tattoo is on yeah. and send it away. And stretch it. And they preserve it and put it in a frame for you. That's exactly what I was asking. And you've already looked into this? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I really. This, so. That's amazing. Um, you should. There should be a rule like new students at at what learning trade secrets will turn into have to kiss the tattoo. 
do. <laughs> well, if there's glass over, I don't think it's a problem, but I, I don't think I'd want everybody kissing my arm as they come in the door. That would be weird. Uh, you'll get used to it real fast, Kate. It's, yeah. Well, if I'm dead, you know, I don't care. <laughs> I can't complain. <laughs> you grew up in the, the Violin Society of America, Kate. I mean, this it's a, I have heard you say... <laughs> that you uh, have been involved with the Violin Society of America since you were in utero. So mom and dad met at the uh, Chicago school. And your mom was a student as well? Uh, yes, mom was also a student. Cool. Mom and dad got married while mom was still in school. And then she was, what, three months pregnant or so? with me when she was in I graduation think more like five months pregnant for graduation yeah so i got to graduate from the violent <laughs> uh, making school <laughs> nice and you were just soaking that knowledge up young lady i was <laughs> my parents homeschooled us for a while <laughs> and they would take us to the uh conventions when we were homeschooled and mom would take us out and um we would go tour around while dad was listening to all the lectures and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Rodney, at my very first convention, uh, you, you were kind to a, well, most everyone was kind, but especially you and Marilyn Wallen separately came over to a group of us with our scraggly beards and uh, our bloodshot eyes from staying up for the first time at the convention and, uh, asked us how we were doing, what school we were at, what we wanted to get out of our careers. And uh, I've, I've always been really grateful that you took the time to reach out. There's, there's always another 150 kids with big heads. And uh, I, I think it's great that you make it a point to make people feel welcome. Thanks. Well, you know, if you think about it, if, if you really love this business, you have to help the next generation come and, and get schooled up because you try to make really wonderful things, like to think that there are people behind you that are going to be able to take care of them and then make their own wonderful things Yeah, and train the next generation too. So you're putting uh, protection in place for your bows by being nice to kids. I get it. <laughs> yeah. So you, you started a school, Rodney, and it's not just to teach bow makers. You're teaching everybody in this field. Tell us a little bit about um, how Learning Trade Secrets got started. So about six years ago, we decided that we would start teaching classes in bow making and bow repair. We started it in our in our home shop here, and we were able to, to uh, shoehorn in about four students at a time. And uh, that got uh, a little crowded, so we moved to our garage, and we were able to put, I think, 10 people in a class. And then we had more people that wanted to come, and we decided it was time to find a space that we could set up a permanent uh, workshop, and my wife Ann could get her garage back. Mm -hmm. So last year, we started uh, learning trade secrets, and now we have um, teachers from other disciplines in the violin world uh, come and teach. Like I said, this week we have um, Stacy Stiles here teaching, uh, I think there's 11 students. Oh, she's so great. Retouching. And it's, I mean, it's just so amazing to see something come in that's dirty and, and pretty Bang pathetic up. looking. And, <laughs> and by the end of the week, this ugly scar in the violin is 
at least reduced and it's and it's you know how easily noticeable it is and and um you know the fact that there's somebody who can teach you a methodology uh to do this it's 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 really great yeah our our philosophy is always above all do no harm and it 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 uh it surprises me how often i see things that are you know just things are just completely blown apart. I, I have this absolutely gorgeous um, Victor Fatigue violin bow, golden ebony. It's kind of a rare bow in that, that I you don't really see very many Fatigues that are golden ebony. And it looks like somebody used a shovel to shape the tip on this head. And I, I mean, a sh like, uh, it's, <laughs> I have no idea how you can do uh, the work that was done on this. It's just, it's, and I have no idea what to do to, to make it look better. Yeah. And that's a full size shovel, not a garden spade. Yeah. I met a guy once, Rodney, who, uh, and after seeing his tools, I respected the work I'd seen of his more than when I was just mad at him, but he didn't have a toothed blade plane. What he had was a stinking grapefruit spoon that he'd sharpened. That's some ingenuity. <laughs> no joke. And he was taking patches and stuff down inside of the rentals he was fixing. And it's just, I was just like too thunderstruck to yell at him. Maybe, maybe that's what we need to do with those grapefruit spoon boats. <laughs> there you go. Put them up on April Fool's Day on More Better Tools on the website. For a ridiculous price. Right. <laughs> well, guys, you, um, oh, what am I going to say? Uh, <laughs> clearly, you guys are are investing so much effort into training the next generation, not just in your family, but um, all the people around you. What are you hopeful for in this community in the next 10 years, 20 years? Well, I, I, I made this comment to a friend uh, at Oberlin a couple weeks ago, and I said, uh, "Teaching rehearing is not my passion; it's my mission. We need more qualified people um, to work on instruments and bows. And, and, and one of the other things, it's not so important to teach somebody how to do something." but maybe more important to teach them how to think about it. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? What results do you want at the end? How can you do that job without um, taking away more original material? Um, I've had conversations with uh, David Orland about this exact thing. And it's, we both have, you know, had projects that we, you know, just head on the hook forever and picking them up and looking at it and going, what am I going to do to fix this? Yeah. And then sort of letting it simmer for a while. And then eventually it's like, oh, I could do this. And that way I can leave more original material and, uh, you know, it will be a solid repair and a long lasting repair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's, that's what I'm hoping people will do is, is um you know start that thinking process more about uh, more you know and and thinking more about 
preservation versus restoration. Yeah, sometimes you can just chop away something and put something new on and it, it takes away the problem. Sometimes that's not the best thing to do. I've seen a, a much better attitude about exactly what you're talking about just in the since the beginning of what I'll call my career about 20 years ago, even with with well-respected restorers that um, I think coming out of the Francais shop and that era where the, the 70s was um, a time of wizardry and restoration and repair, when they'd fix stuff so that it was invisible by blowing out more of the original instrument or bow. And I, I've appreciated a much more an approach that is much more in line with conservation with like museum practices that like, well, if, if the cracks there and it's dirty, don't break the top apart and put a spline in, in order to make it disappear, just make sure it's stable so that it, it, it lives longer in its originality. Yeah. I, I, you know, I agree. I think Oberlin probably has a huge, um, you know, amount of credit, um, for helping us have those it, it it's given us a place to have those conversations mm -hmm. uh there's this story that came out a few years ago and i wanted to get uh, kate and rodney's take on it like what what would you do in this situation so the title is violinist sues luthier for snapping eighty thousand dollar bow <sighs> <laughs> California uh yeah Burbank California the shop's owner Whoa. snapped his bow uh a report from Courthouse News states that the incident happened January 2013 when Leonidas Cavacos brought the bow to uh I won't say the shop uh let's see the owner began applying pressure to the Henry bow which at the time which at which time the Henry bow snapped in two pieces Henri. Yeah. Oh, Henri. Okay. Uh, it sounds like uh, the guy says, well, he should have heated up the bow before attempting to apply pressure on it. Uh, thoughts, guys? Well, isn't that everybody's nightmare? Mm -hmm. uh, working on somebody's uh, precious whatever and having it blow up and on your bench. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, the, the, the advice I pass out most when people say, what advice can you give to a young maker? It's like, get insurance. Just do it now. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I tell my students is, um, you know, when you're starting out, don't work on anything you can't write a check for. Oh, okay? yeah. You know, yeah. because your insurance isn't going to cover anything under $1,000. That's, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to have that as your, your um, deductible, most likely. And your insurance is, you know, there's the workbench policy that if you have, if you break something at your bench, um, it probably won't cover over $25,000. Mm. So, um, you know, I've had this conversations with uh, many of my colleagues, you know, I mean, do you straighten bows? And, you know, a lot of people just say, you know, hey, if that's, if the customer is okay with the crooked thing, leave it alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you'll do what you can while rehairing, but you, and I'm I'm sorry I shouldn't say you that the the idea is uh, don't recamber unless it's explicitly asked for. Yeah, I mean if somebody came into my shop and said, "Well, I've got this tort and I want it straightened," we're gonna have a we're gonna have a conversation about you know what the risks are, 
and are they willing to take these risks? And um, I mean, I want to do it because mm -hmm. it's just not the easiest thing to do. It's just, it's a, it's a scary thing of re recambering base bows. Um, they are so difficult to bend in the first place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Kate's first baseball, I think she broke five sticks trying to camber them before she actually oh. made her first bow. It, oh, Catherine. It was only four. Four, sorry, four. <laughs> that wood is endangered. Well, you know, so it's 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 probably the the riskiest thing you can do for sure is is recambering a bow. And we had one bow that was um to be unnamed Miracor bow from probably the 50s that um clearly it had been um stained with acid and as soon as you started to heat the thing up i mean like uh not that much higher than room temperature it would start to burn <laughs> obviously that's another problem is that as you're trying to heat them up you want to make sure that you're not uh not getting yourself in trouble there so that was like okay we're done with this bow well guys i i want to ask you before we wrap up Tell me some things that you wish violin shops and makers and repairers knew about about bows. Ooh, good question. That's you know you asked me this last time. It's really hard to come up with with something. Yeah. Um, well, you were talking a little bit about uh, how to, the right way to sell a bow. Yeah. So one one of the things on uh, that I see often that uh, players will do is um, they'll tighten up the bow further than it needs to be. And um, usually that's an indication that the bow that they're using probably isn't strong enough or it doesn't have enough camber. You know, one of the sort of the rules of thumb is that you could take, take a pencil and stick it between the hair and the stick, and you, when you tighten up the bow and the pencil drops out, that's all the tension that you should put in the bow. You don't need any more than that. One of the most common things I see is I'll have a student from conservatory come in. Uh, they're a cellist. It's February, and they want to look for a new bow. And you'll hand them a bow. They'll crank the thing up, the tension up way farther than it should be. And they'll sit down, and they'll start the Dvorak Cello Concerto. <laughs> so something super complicated well it's just that it's you know when you think about those first few phrases they are the loudest thing you can do with a cello okay mm -hmm. okay and that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to take this bow and make a battering ram out of it and try to beat the sound out of their instrument and they haven't yet learned that there's other techniques other than pressure that will bring a larger volume out of their instrument. And in reality, you need your bow to do a range of things, not just present at its maximum volume. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that a bow has the amount of curve in it is at first, it's applying tension to the hair that's going to grab the string in a certain way. But it's also that that curve gives the bow stability. It's a, the more you tighten up the, the bow, the less stable the bow is. In fact, the, as you press down, the bow is going to squirt one way or the other, and usually towards the string. 
And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can see bows that have um, big old scars on the side of the stick in the middle where they've been dragging it on the string and literally filing it away. You know what? I've heard a phrase. I've heard that there are, as far as performers, there's pushers and there's pullers. Yeah. What does that mean? First, I'm not a player. So somebody who's going to be pulling the sound, just drawing the sound out, it sounds like it's a much more... You're, you're coaxing the sound out of the instrument. You're not forcing the sound out of the instrument, I guess, would be the difference between the two. Yeah. It, it takes a different adjustment as a, a, an instrument luthier, especially for cellists. But somebody who's producing sound with bow speed and bow point, rather than uh, watching two cellos and trying to use every muscle in their back, shoulder, and forearm to create power... Um, if you hand one a cello that's been adjusted for the other, they'll think that it's absolutely a, a piece of trash instrument. So it's, it's one of the questions that I get into with a player um, is how they use their bow arm if I can't watch them play just then. Oh, and Rodney, you had a great story that really highlights how every bow is unique to a player. Tell me the story about the first bow that you made and trying to sell it. Well, so this wasn't the first bow I made. I had made a bow that was a, a gold bow that was um, sort of uh, patterned after Simone. It was just something I wanted to to make as sort of a, you know, hey, this is what I can do kind of a bow. And uh, so I finished up the bow and I handed it to my wife, Anne, who's a very fine player. And she played it. And her first comment was, wow, this is really hard to control which in my mind wasn't the greatest um, compliment. No. <laughs> so um, then I showed it to a friend of ours who at the time was playing in the Atlanta Symphony and uh, she played it and she was like, yeah, it's a nice bow. It's not really my style of bow. Okay. There's another mark against this. And so I decided, well, maybe it's time just to sell this to a shop and I'll make something else. And so I sent it to the shop and, the comment that was, uh, wow, this thing's like a piece of spaghetti. <laughs> and uh, that didn't feel very well either. And I, I knew this bow wasn't weak. Um, it was, it felt really good in, in, you know, in my hands. And um, so we decided to send it to Daniel Majeski, who was the concert master of the Cleveland Orchestra. And my wife, Ann, had studied with him for four years. So we had, you know, a nice relationship with him. So I sent him the bow and uh, patiently waited a week for his comments. And so I, I called him up and I said, well, what do you think of the bow? And he says, well, I'm not in the habit of stealing, but you're not getting this bow back. Nice. And he didn't pay you is what he was saying. <laughs> so, you know, the lesson from that experience was there's a bow for every person and a person for every bow. That's a nice story. I had the great honor of working on um, Daniel Majeski's bows for probably 10 years while he was still the concertmaster. And he had this twert bow that's pretty well known in the New York area is the Robinoff or Rubinoff twert. I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. David Rubinoff was a pretty famous uh, violinist in the New York area. So this twert bow was really hard to rehair because it was 
super flexible. So you had to make the hair a bit longer than you would have normally because the bow was so flexible, it, it would shrink so much that then the hair would be too short. And so I asked Dan one day, what do you get out of playing this, this bow that is so flexible? And his comment back was infinite color. He played on an awful nice Stradivari violin mm. too, the, the oh. uh, Marquise de Riviera Strad. But he said, with a more flexible bow, the phrasing possibilities are endless. That was a real eye-opener. And, and most, most players want mm -hmm. stronger bows. They're asking for more hair. And uh, that's just the complete polar opposite of what he was doing. Guys, you have been lovely to talk to today. And I, I enjoy the company of both of you very much. So it's an extra treat to get to talk to you all today. Well, thank you very much. Agreed. Uh, I wish you the best of success with all your future bows that you make and with the school. And I hope everybody comes to see you guys. More better tools. More better tools. More better. <laughs> More better things coming. And where can people find you? We are at learningtradesecrets.com. And everywhere else. All the, the major social media places. Have a great day, guys. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Hi, this is Adam Galucci. This is the listener feedback. Okay, listener feedback from Paul McAvoy. Mm -hmm. are, are there five books you would recommend for the beginning DIY at-home luthier? Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, this, this can be a can of worms here because... Yeah, you were going to list 12, I'm sure. No, <laughs> I actually I actually thought about this. If, if we're going to be fully honest, you sent me this question last night. And so I had time to ponder while drinking my coffee this morning. Uh, so DIY, that's the bit that, that gives me pause. And I've got five books picked out, but mm -hmm. there's going to be some caveats and maybe things that I would switch out dependent on your ability, which way you'd like to go with things. So number one, a very cheap book to buy is Useful Measurements for Violin Makers by Henry Strobel. Strobel. Yes. Yeah. That because, was one of my first books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's super useful. Uh, it's not very controversial, although some people could look at the measurements and say, well, I don't do it like that. But for the most part, it's pretty average stuff, and it's <laughs> extremely useful to get your your mind around uh, what makes uh, instruments tick from a measurement perspective. Mm -hmm. Number two, uh, The Art of Violin Making by Chris Johnson and Roy Courtnow. Uh, there's been better violin making books since this. I think that the Derber book probably blows it out of the water, even though I've not seen it. But from a, a bang for the buck standpoint, uh, you get a lot for, for the Johnson and Courtnow book. Okay. Number three, this is kind of a, a dark horse book. Oh, dark horse. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, not as dark as number four, but. Uh, number <laughs> yeah. Chris, you do that too well. Thanks, buddy. Mm -hmm. Number three, Making Stringed Instruments, a workshop guide by George Buchanan. That was uh, my first book. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hokey. You open it up and, I mean, there's these kind of folk art drawings of things uh 
but the thing that's useful about it is it shows you how to improvise equipment. Like there's a, a way yes. to yes. make a bending iron out of some pipe and a torch. And as scary as that sounds, I bet it would work. And mm -hmm. the marking gauge that they show how to make out of a screw and piece of wood. Yeah. I yeah. still use that to this day. It works perfect. Oh, me better, too, man. Better than the real thing. Yeah, I see people put that on Instagram. And that's a that's a good book. Mm -hmm. The little the little washer, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. No, it's a... Oh, I'm talking about something different then. Never this mind. is much <laughs> more ghetto than that. <laughs> this, is, this is super ghetto. If you've got a file, a screw, and a scrap of pine, you're in business. Yeah, I mean, you're... Your file is built. I, I used cherry for a violin back because of that book, and uh, then I burnt that violin. Mm -hmm. But there's mm -hmm. some good info in it. Mm -hmm. Number four, this is this is the dark horse. Um, a lot of people get into Luthery not really understanding hand tools. And mm -hmm. so I picked uh, The Anarchist Tool Chest by Christopher Schwartz. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. Lost Art Press, and... It's from a cabinet making perspective, but he goes through and shows you a very basic tool list of what you would need to make pretty much any bit of cabinetry. And while a lot of the stuff doesn't go forth to instruments, um, you can gain a base understanding of what these tools do. And that'll give you a good understanding of the Western tradition of hand tool work. If you couple yes. your dark horse with a Japanese woodworking tool usage, uh, that it would it would give a lot of strength to to new makers. Heck yes, heck yes. Now, since our our, our guy here asked for DIY, um, that kind of influences number five. Uh, my the logical choice that I would pick out for somebody wishing to get into repair work would be the Weishar book. Yeah. However, mm -hmm. you can get yourself it's three hundred dollars, and you can get yourself yeah. into trouble really, really, really quickly. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff in there that's kind of frozen in time. Uh, we don't do things exactly the same way as they're done there. It's a great book mm -hmm. to keep around. Um, it assumes a level of. Uh, of experience that leaves steps out to get to the fancy yeah. stuff. And it yeah. can, yeah. Yes. yes. I feel very comfortable using that book now. And two years ago, I did not. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and it's cool to see like, for instance, the, um, the button patch that I did at the Oberlin workshop. Looked a few beautiful. Weeks ago. Um, thank you. And uh, the way that they teach it in the book has a lot of straight lines for the patch. Mm -hmm. And there's since been this new philosophy that you you don't want any super straight lines when you're patching. Um, so it's it's cool to see that and see that like there's a knowledge base that's still being built from the Weishaar book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You should write a book called the Schwarzhaar, the dark side of the Weishaar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it does really nothing for order of operations. And in restoration work, order of operations is king. And... Uh, for the DIY guy at home, I think it's going to be a bit much. So my number five pick, I think it's always a good idea to have an idea. That was a lot of ideas I said back to back. It's always <laughs> great to have uh, an idea of what good instruments look like. And again, it's an expensive book, but I think it's worth it for the bang for the buck. Uh, four centuries of violin making and find instruments from the Sotheby's archive. It's 235 mm. bucks 
mm-hmm. but it is a massive tome of of vetted pictures. Mm-hmm. You can, I think, most of the experts that I've talked to agree that that book's pretty good. You can rely on the attributions of the instruments in that book. So those are my five choices. Cool. Cool. And uh, how far along are you guys in your library of books that cost at least $200 each? Pretty far. (laughs) I've got 10. um, And Um, um, I want so many more. Uh, It's ridiculous. There's uh, all the things out there. They're small press runs and they have to be full colors. They're always ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I gotta oh. say, if I could, if I could tack onto your five, Go for it. I mean, you've you've got to get a copy of the Sacconi book. It's the same yeah. as with the Vicehar. It's a, uh, it is perhaps outdated. It is a little precious in how beautifully planned it suggests these instruments were made. Um, but even if you never build an instrument you are going to have to put a base bar in. You are going to have to take wood out and replace wood at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Sacconi book is a solid stepping stone for how do I plan the thicknesses and heights of things so that the instrument works well. Hi, this is Michelle Bartos, and this is Dakota. Thanks, Rosie. I, You know, I, I may get in trouble for this. Ben Hebert, who French polished the Messiah? I'm not sure whether it was Viome who put the he put a screw in the top block. We spent yes. we spent an awful lot of time looking at X-rays of the top block and working out the thread of the screw, and then and then learning far too much about the history of screw making and Viome the screw <laughs> through the top block. And I can't I can't tell you how satisfyingly geeky that was. And uh, yeah, when when uh, Brigitte Brandmeier was doing her Stradivari varnish stuff, and I, I was helping them to do it, and I took the instrument, put it in the ultraviolet room, and it was a wrong color. And you know, at that time, you know, we were certain that you know there was no doubt that it was genuine. But we'd just gone and done three other strads, and they'd all come out the same color. And the Messiah was just saying, having none of that, a totally different color. And uh, I think it was probably BM. Were you tempted to bury everyone and never talk about it? Cross my mind. (laughs) (laughs) OMO is the passion project of Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can always connect with us at mail at omopod.com or leave a message on the Omophone, 240-686-5345. We love hearing from you and are always taking more questions for listener feedback. This episode edited with love by yours truly. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part.